As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father, you are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you. Help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, for to serve you is perfect freedom. So speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening, and hear us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament between Zechariah and Matthew. Um, You'll find that on page 1019 of many of our pew Bibles. Um, And we're taking up a new study through the book of Malachi this evening. I was thinking when we're done with Ruth, kind of looking around at where we've been recently, and I thought it's probably about time that we thought about a prophet uh, we've thought about all the different other kinds of uh, books lately, except for maybe epistles, which is where we'll go next, the letters of the New Testament. But I thought we should go to the Old Testament and think about a prophecy, and I think Micah is one that we do well to consider together. So we want to read the first five verses of Micah together this evening and consider what it has to teach us. So Micah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, Maybe this seems like a strange choice um, of something to think about on a Sunday evening. Uh, You thought it was strange when we sang twice about Zion and Og, um, and maybe this seems a strange passage uh, to go to. But I think this this prophecy for this people at this time when Malachi was writing has a lot of uh, parallel significance to us in our time. It has a lot to say to God's people who are living um, in what in many ways are in-between times. Uh, the people of Malachi's day lived in what we might call in-between times, and we'll uh, get to that more and think more about what I mean by that as we go on. Um, but we know that for God's people, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, I remember coming across, I was not reading Roman poetry, but in the Roman poet Terence, he said, I am human, and nothing, therefore nothing human is alien to me. Um, he sort of said every, every human experience is a human experience. If you're human, you can relate to people and what they experience. And we might be able to say, following that, that every Christian, if you're a Christian, then nothing Christian is alien to you. Nothing that God's people have faced in any generation is entirely different from what God's people face in our own generation. And I think some of the questions and some of the concerns and some of the difficulties that came up in Malachi's time are people are the same kinds of things that people like us who are living in in in-between times can struggle with. Um, We are living between two great times, uh, the time of our Lord's first coming into the world and the time of his second coming, which the Bible teaches us always to regard as something that's going to happen soon. 
Um, and living between those times is, is wonderful to know that Christ has come and that Christ is coming again soon in glory to judge the living and the dead. But we're faced as people who are living in between still those two times. Um, and that raises issues and difficulties for us. And I thought people of Malachi's time were also living in in-between times and what they struggled with can relate to what we some, sometimes struggle with. Uh, similar doubts, similar trials, similar temptations. Um, and so I thought this book would be helpful for us to see how they raised questions of God and how we can see how God responded to their answers and how those answers can help us in our trials and in our difficulty. Um, so as we approach the book of Malachi together, uh, we see it begin with what is really an unthinkable question um, and is responded to by God with an unexpected answer and finally leads us to an unavoidable conclusion. And that's how I want to think about this passage together. An unthinkable question, an unexpected answer, and an unavoidable conclusion. Now, there's a repeated pattern. Uh, many prophets are, are difficult sometimes for us to read through and work through because they often work in kind of cycles. Um, and they repeat patterns. And sometimes that re repetition, if we don't see it and how it's moving, uh, can be difficult for us. And it's good for us to recognize at the beginning that Malachi follows a pattern in the way he presents the oracle that God has given to him. Uh, there's a repeated pattern that will come up again and again in this prophecy, and we do well to orient ourselves to it here at the very beginning. And that pattern is going to be that God will express a question that people have been raising to him. Um, he will express a, a question um, that they've been raising in response to a statement he makes. And so the passage begins with God making a statement, I have loved you. That's the statement he makes. And then he brings up this question that people have been raising to him, which is questioning that statement. Right? If we notice that, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Um, and this is the pattern that we're going to see again and again in Malachi. God will make a statement, and God's people will be pictured as responding with the kinds of things they've been saying um, and questioning the statements that God makes. Um, God says, I have loved you, and the people respond by saying, how have you loved us? And then the pattern will be completed when God vindicates the statement he's made, proves that what he says is true. And we see that happening in the rest of the passage. That's a pattern that will keep coming in the book of Malachi. A statement from the Lord questioning that statement by the people and the Lord vindicating the truth of what he has said. So that's the pattern. We can see that pattern developing. But of course, immediately we notice the problem with the way God's people respond to the statement he makes. They respond by asking a kind of unthinkable question. It's one of the reasons we read Psalm one, we sang Psalm 136 together. It's the psalm that has that repeated refrain. Um, the steadfast Lord of, love of the Lord never ceases. Right? That repeated refrain of the steadfast love of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord. So it's kind of unthinkable to come to the Lord after he says, I have loved you, and say to him, how have you loved us? Um, it's why I titled the sermon this evening what I did. It's one of those kinds of questions. Does God really love us? Um, it's kind of an unthinkable question for God's people to raise to him. When God says, I have loved you, to say back to him, have you really loved us? 
How have you loved us? How have we seen your love to us? Um, It's kind of an unthinkable question, and if we really want to understand it, we have to understand what the times were like that Malachi's people were living in. I think that's also why we struggle sometimes with these prophecies. We really don't know what was going on in the life of Israel or where we are in its history when these things come up. Uh, But Malachi is writing about the middle of the 400s B.C., Um, and if that doesn't help you uh, orient yourself to what's going on, that's okay. Um, But that means that this was written probably roughly about 150 years after Israel had gone into exile. So Judah went into exile in Babylon around 586. And so Micah is writing roughly 150 years after the exile, and then also roughly about 70 years after they've already come back from the exile. Uh, So the exile in Babylon has already happened. They've been in exile for 70 years. They've returned to the land. They've been back in the land about 70 years. Um, That means that this is a time when the temple has been rebuilt, uh, when temple worship has been restored. Um, So these, these are people who've come out of the other side of the exile. They're back in the promised land. The temple's been restored. They're back worshiping God as he called them to, but it was still a time for God's people of great weakness. Uh, They were back. They were back in the land. They'd been restored to the land, but it was a time of great political weakness for the people of God. Um, You remember that they had come back only as a remnant of the people that had gone out. Uh, They came back as a people who were still under the rule of a foreign empire that had allowed them to go back. Uh, So they had come back, but they had not really returned to what they were before they'd gone into exile. They were politically weak. Um, They were surrounded by many strong enemies. So this was not a time of political strength in Israel. It was a great time of political weakness for God's people. They had strong enemies all around them that were putting a lot of pressure on them to conform to the culture and to the expectations that were all around them. It was a time of great political weakness. It was a time of great economic weakness. This was a time when Israel had experienced many droughts and crop failures uh, that had made it hard for them to support themselves. They were also subject to heavy taxation by their Persian overlords. So this was a time where God's people were not doing well politically, they were not doing well economically, and they were not doing well spiritually. Even though temple worship had been restored, it was a time when the priesthood had been filled with corruption, that the people had become very lax about keeping God's laws. And so this was a time of weakness. It was a time of great weakness for the people of God. And as they read their Bibles and as they thought about what God had told them, they said, you know, we look around us and see all this weakness, but wasn't this a time when God had promised great restoration to his people? Uh, didn't didn't the, the law and the prophets talk about the fact that, you know, God would judge us for our sin and we would go into exile and he would punish us for a time, but wherever he scattered us to the ends of the earth, he would come for us and he would call us back and he would restore us in our land. And we've come back, we, we're back in the land where the temple is standing again, we're back to where we were before, we've made a lot of progress, we're not where we were, but we're not where we hope to be. And all of those promises of great restoration don't yet seem to be fulfilled. Didn't God say he would restore our fortunes? Where are our fortunes? Where where is the restoration 
that we'd hoped for. Um, As one commentator put it, their fortunes were somewhat restored, but still the realities of everyday life confronted them, realities that they found to be, he said, depressingly mundane and difficult. I thought these were going to be the good times. Um, You see how they were a people living in a kind of in-between time? We're back, but we're not all the way back. We're restored, but not greatly restored as we were promised. Where is the promise of these these great times that were to come? Um, Have God's promises really been carried forward to us as we see them expressed in the law and in the prophets? And you can see why that would cause some of God's people to say, God, you say you love us, And that you have a wonderful plan for our lives and a great promise for the future. But where is the evidence of your love? Is this what it looks like to be a people who are loved by you? Uh, To be in this kind of situation, experiencing this kind of weakness? It reminds us this can be a temptation for God's people living in in in-between times. We might say, are we really anything like the people who lived during, during Malachi's time, 400 years, 450 years before the coming of Christ. Is this really applicable um, to us in our day? Um, or is this just sort of old, old news, these things? Um, but I think if we, if we think about it and if we're honest with ourselves, this can still be a temptation for God's people in this day and age. Christ has come, right? Who is, who's on the throne now? Christ is on the throne now. I know it's nighttime and we're not used to responding, so that's fine. Um, But you know the answers are all Jesus, right? Boys and girls, you know that the answers are are Jesus. Where is Jesus now? He's ruling at his Father's right hand. The one who loved us so much that he laid down his life on the cross to save us from our sins, did not withhold even his own body and blood, suffered his precious body to be broken for our sins, his blood to be poured out, that they might be true food and true drink unto us for eternal life. That one who loves us is on the throne now. Um, It's wonderful good news. But there can be a temptation to say, if Jesus is reigning now... Why aren't things better for us? Why is life for us depressingly mundane and difficult? Um, Where are the great promises that were made to us? We know there's a glorious future coming, but if Christ is on the throne and he loves his church, and we know he does, then why are we facing what we are here and now? Why are we facing what we are facing individually? Why are we facing what we are as a church? And there can be that temptation to allow that that question to creep into our minds. Does God really love us? If he really loved us, would these things be happening to us? And we can feel that as a church, where we feel like, especially as a church in our country, where we feel like our influence is slipping away. Our power is just getting weaker and weaker. That spiritually the church is getting to be in a worse and worse state. Um, we can sort of feel like, is this, 
Is this the church of the Lord who sits on the throne? Is this the church of the king? Is this what life is like when the king is on the throne? Does he really love us? And if he loves us so much, why are these things happening to us? Um, Maybe we never pose the question directly that way. How have you loved us? Um, But I think if we're honest, we have had that kind of question creep into our hearts. And maybe we've even struggled because we know really that we don't have a right to ask that question. Um, He's shown clearly how much he loves us. And God's people had that clearly pictured for them. That's also why we sang Psalm 135 and 136. They, They recount all the ways that God has shown his love to his people. They knew they didn't have the right to ask the question, but that's how they felt. And if they felt that way, given all the great acts of redemption that God had done in the old covenant, which were a pale shadow of what he would do in his son, Jesus Christ, that that means we live in a better time, but maybe it can be harder for us, knowing what God has done for us in Christ, to say, where is the love for the church? Is this the world we live in with Christ on the throne? And in that sense, it's really a wonderful sign of God's mercy that he doesn't just allow us to ask this question without answering it, but comes in a sense through his oracle to his people, through Malachi, his messenger, to say to them, I know what you've been saying, and I have an answer. I can prove to you that I love you. I can prove my love for you. And it's interesting that God responds to this sort of unthinkable question with a kind of unexpected answer. Right? We, we might have expected, if God was going to prove how much he loved them, to go through a litany of the love he'd showed to them. Do something like he does in Psalm 136. Do something like he does in Psalm 135 or 146. Psalms that recount all the good things that God has done for his people. Or go through the history of things that God has done for his people. But this is a kind of unexpected way to answer. God doesn't give them a litany of how he has loved them. He actually contrasts his love with his hate. And he compares the people of God, Jacob, to Esau and says, let me prove my love to you by showing what it's like if I didn't love you. And that makes this a very difficult text in that regard because God speaks of his hatred for Esau, Um, his hatred for the people of Esau, Edom. Um, This is a difficult saying because it touches on that difficult decree, the decree of divine reprobation, uh, God's purpose to leave Esau in the sinful misery into which he plunged himself, God's decision not to work saving faith in him and to condemn him and to punish him eternally for his own sins. It's a difficult, it's a difficult doctrine. Um, It's difficult because as Paul reminds us in Romans, the decision was not based on Esau's works. Romans 9 tells us that he made this decree before Esau had done anything. This was based on God's good and sovereign will to show mercy on whom he would show mercy and to harden those he would harden. John Calvin called this an awful decree. Um, It's awful because of what it represents for people like Esau. 
Um, and we know that God, what God decreed also played out in redemptive history because Esau was an ungodly man who spurned his birthright, who lost his blessing, who abandoned the promised land for Edom and abandoned the God of his father to serve other gods. Um, the people of Esau, Edom, followed in their father's footsteps. Uh, they showed them to be a people like their father. Um, even though God had commanded Israel um, not to fight with Edom, their brother, when they passed through to the promised land, even though God gave Edom a land of their own, uh, they did nothing but harass God's people throughout their history. Psalm 137 remembers that Edom was celebrating when Babylon tore Jerusalem to the ground, stood by cheering on their brother's destruction. Um, and as a result of what they <clears throat> had done throughout their history to God's people, uh, God made a declaration like what he declares here in Obadiah 1.10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. God's hatred is a hard truth because it is a terrible truth. It sets before us the consequences of sin. And it's particularly terrible because it reminds us that by nature, this is what we all deserve. Um, it's easy for us to believe that really bad people deserve justice. Serial killers are the great dictators of history. Um, they deserve justice. They deserve the kind of judgment that God talks about in his word. It's much harder for us to reconcile the fact that we deserve that justice too. Uh, that we deserve to be punished for our sins. By nature, we deserve God's hatred. It's difficult for us to admit that it would be perfect justice for all sinners to have been completely destroyed and removed from the face of the earth as a rebellious blight on what God had made very good. It's a hard truth to wrestle with. Um, but God, I think, raises this, this point of hatred here um, to remind them of the difference between what it is to be loved and what it is to be hated. Um, that he calls before their mind the important question of his love. Um, if we really think about it, the difficult question in this passage is not why did God hate Esau? The difficult question in this passage is why does God love Jacob? That's really the much harder question to answer. Um, I remember reading an article written by Jacob Eppinga, who was a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, wrote in their uh, Christian Reformed Church publication. He wrote a very popular column. It was a very winsome column. He, it was wonderful. Whenever they surveyed readers, they said, this is our favorite column, bar none, what Reverend Eppinga writes. And the last column he wrote for the banner was when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he wrote that as an article saying, I'm dying. Um, and, and talking about dealing with that diagnosis and wanting to do it well as a pastor and wanting to make sure people understood things. And um, he wanted to be sure that no one would ask the question, why would a bad thing like this happen to a good person? Like Reverend Eppinga. And he said in his own winsome way, as important as is the question about why God allows bad things to happen to good people, it is not the most important question in life. The most important question in life, in all the world and all the universe for that matter, is rather, why does God allow a good thing to happen to bad people? I am a sinner, a bad person, yet my father gave his only son for me. 
a very good thing indeed. Um, Do God's people ever earn his love? Do we ever deserve his love? No, actually, Scripture is one long story of a faithful God and a faithless people. That's where it starts. That's where it goes from there. A faithful God and a faithless people over and over again. Exodus is the story of that. Uh, God's people going into Canaan is the story of that. The remnant that came back from exile is the story of that. And if we're honest, we are a story of that. Uh, God saves us by his grace out of our sin and misery, calls us to himself, works saving faith in our hearts, brings us to him. We have nothing, we should have nothing but gratitude in our hearts for what God has done, and we constantly find ourselves plunging ourselves back into sin. Right? I don't know about you, but if, you know, if you ever come to the morning service like this, come talk to me. We need to have a talk. But do you ever get tired of your own confessions of sin? Don't you wish that one, just one week you could come and have something new instead of the same old thing over and over again? Maybe you're a better sort of people than I am. I'm tired of my own prayers of confession. I'm tired of my own sins. I'm tired of this repeated pattern and how it talks about my ingratitude to God. Do I deserve anything from him but his wrath? No. And yet, he's loved me. And yet, he loved a people. Why does he love them? Not for something that's in them. He loves them because of what's in him. Because we didn't deserve his love. Because we deserved his judgment He set his grace and love on us and in love chose us out of the misery into which we'd plunged ourselves. Chose Jacob not because he was better than Esau or because he would do better than Esau, because he loved him and in Christ saved him and will not let him go because of his love for him. Why does God love us? The answer is as simple as it is profound. Because he purposed to love us. Because of what's in him and his grace and mercy, he loved us and saved us from ourselves. That, at the end of the day, is the only difference between Jacob and Esau, is God's love, um, is God's attitude. They were equally deserving, but God showed mercy on Jacob. Um, And this is a really remarkable way God answers the question, how have you loved us? God comes and says, because this is what it would look like if I hated you. This is what it would look like if I hated you. Um, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. How have you loved us? You know I love you because if I hated you, that's what it would look like. It's a sobering answer. But it's a wonderful reminder that God says, but I haven't hated you. I've loved you. I have loved Jacob. I have loved you. I have not hated you. 
That's the good news that comes in this passage. That God loves people who don't deserve his love. That he showed forth that love in Christ. That's what should keep us when we're suffering in our own trials and temptations from saying we are suffering just like the wicked. Where is the evidence that God loves us? Things don't seem to be going any better for us than it's going for the wicked. And God's word reminds us there's a crucial difference between what the righteous suffer and what the wicked suffer in this world. Because for the wicked, these things will always end in their destruction. Right? Even, even though the Lord judges Edom the way he judges them, they say, that's okay, we'll rebuild. And the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies says, you may rebuild, but I'll tear it down again. It always ends in destruction for the wicked. The people who God will be angry with forever. But the difference for those he loves is the story never ends in destruction. And the story never ends in ruin. The story always ends in rescue and restoration because he loves us. Um, As he says elsewhere, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Because he loves us, he will not let us go. Just as terrible as the hatred of God is to think about, greater still and more awesome is to think about the fact that God says, I have loved you. It's his love that secures our future. It's his love that is our hope of a future happiness. It's his love that is for us the eternal ever-flowing fountain out of which every saving good flows to his people. Because he loves us, not one good thing will he withhold from us. Because he loves us, he sent his own dearly loved son to be a sacrifice for our sins and to be our righteousness to make us whole. Because Christ loves us, he came to die for sinners. Because he loves us, he will not let us go. The hope is in our fact that God has loved us. And the answer he gives here leads us to that unavoidable conclusion that the Lord is vindicated in his statement when he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Despite all of Israel's covenant breaking and faithlessness, God's love still brings them restoration. They're back in the promised land because God loves them. And the great restoration he promised them will come because God loves them. And when the destruction comes on the wicked, God's people will see it and bear witness to it, but will not be caught up in it. That destruction will not befall them. What will God's people do in that day? In verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord. How should we respond to these things? Well, the first thing we have to say is we should never respond to this truth about God's love and God's hatred with despair. Or somehow worry that we're just hated and there's nothing we can do about being hated or worry that we're not loved and somehow we have to figure out how to get God to love us. We have to remind ourselves that God's eternal decrees are hidden from us. Uh, We can't know who's elect and who's reprobate, who God has chosen to love and who God has chosen to hate. But we know that God has said clearly in his word to everyone that anyone who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. 
I remember hearing a, a, a Baptist minister, S.M. Lockridge, talk about his mission as a pastor, and he put it really well. He said, God has called a nobody to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Um, and I think there can be really no better summary of what it is to have the ministry. God has called a nobody to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. What does God put before us in his word? That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't do us any good to sit around thinking, am I loved, am I hated, is there just nothing I can do if somehow the the deck is just stacked against me? There's no call in scripture for despair or for using God's decrees in that way because what has God revealed to us in his word? That anyone who comes... Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? We know that because of what he's decreed, the words of John 6.37 are true. All that the Father gives me will come to me. His decrees make that true. But the message he wants to bring to the world is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe and you will be saved. We have to respond to this word with repentance and faith. Um, Jacob was not a perfect person. He was loved by God, and because he was loved by God, he responded in repentance and faith. The difference between him and Esau, crucially, was he believed. He believed. And that's how we must react to this message. We must believe. We have to react with repentance and faith. Secondly, we have to react with gratitude. Because if we have repented and believed, we know it's only by the grace of God that we've seen this truth. And the grace that God has given to us testifies to us of his love for us. And that should be a great reason to prompt gratitude in our hearts. To remember that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us so that we would not perish. We have to react with gratitude to that truth. That will help us pursue the things that are pleasing in the sight of our God. Help us to serve him in gratitude for what he has done. So we have to react with faith, we have to react with gratitude, and finally we have to react with praise. Proclaiming the greatness of our God. God is glorified when he shows justice to those who deserve justice, and he's glorified when he shows mercy to those who don't deserve his mercy. But in both ways, God is glorified. And that's what God's people are called to do in verse 5, to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God is just, he's merciful, We are not to talk back to him or ask why he does the things that he does. We're to acknowledge his authority over all that he's made. Matthew 20, 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with that that belongs to me? And so we are to acknowledge the greatness of our God, that he does well when he shows justice and he does well when he shows mercy. And when we can't figure out why he would do one and not the other and we try to probe the depths that are too far for us, We have to do what Paul does in Romans 11. We have to get to that point of saying, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments 
and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. We don't really need to ask the question if God really loves us. We don't need to worry ourselves about his eternal decrees. We just have to do what he tells us to do. Right? We don't need to probe the depths of those things because we only have to respond in the way that he's called us to respond. To put our faith and trust in Jesus to save us from the wrath to come. And knowing that when we've put our faith and trust in Jesus who died for us on the cross and who was raised for our justification, all the judgment that would have been ours has already been paid out to him. That he took it in our place so that we might escape from it. And so when Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, it won't be to deal with our sins. It'll be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we need to be a people that put our faith and trust in Christ. And in, in his wonderful testimony to the love of God for us, that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish. In Christ we were loved before the foundation of the world. In Christ we will be loved as long as this world lasts. And when this heaven and earth pass away, we will be loved forever by the God who loved us in Christ and will keep us in him and will not let us go. So people of God, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these are difficult decrees for us to work through. There is a temptation for us to charge you with injustice or feel as if we've been aggrieved and not really loved. We pray that we would be condemned in this passage for our own lack of faith and trust, that when we hear our own words being echoed in the words of your people in Malachi's time, we would repent. Lord, we know you love us. You sent your son to save us. You've given us the thing that was most precious to you. And if you've not withheld him from us, how will you withhold from us any good thing? How could we ever question your love having seen your son and his love for us expressed in his willingness to die on the cross for sinners? We thank you that he died for our sins. We thank you that he was raised for our justification. We pray that all here would know him who is truly God, the one whom you've sent, that we'd all find salvation in his name. Amen.